Welcome to the SportsPro podcast with SportsPro editor Owen Connolly, getting inside the sports industry, then recording it on audio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the SportsPro podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor of SportsPro, and I'm joined by a, a new look team here. We've got uh, Steve Wilson from the Associated Press. Hello, Steve. We've got Steve Martin, another first-timer from MNC Saatchi. Hi, Steve. Hello. And we've got Richard Gillis, who we have heard before, the unofficial partner himself. Hi, Richard. Hello. Well, guys, it's been quite a weekend of sport. I'm working off James's notes here because he's a, a late dropout, but his first note is, what a weekend of sport, all caps, no punctuation. Um, what's, what's everybody enjoyed this weekend? We've had... We've had the Masters, we've had the National, we've had uh, Leicester City continuing their unlikely rise. I mean, what what's caught Joshua your fight? Yeah, yeah, Joshua fight. I mean, what's caught everybody's attention? It's got to be the Masters, isn't it? As that's the shape that we've we've uh, pre-chosen to. <laughs> no, no, no. To I take the program. I haven't talked about them, but I think the you know of all those events, the Masters have got to stand out. Masters, I think, the best, one of the best events of the year. Yeah. I mean, what, what is it, Richard, you're, you're well-placed to discuss this. I mean, what is it about the Masters that sets it apart from other events, not just in golf, but, but across the industry? Um, okay, so there is a, there's a sort of, I think there's two answers to that question. One is that <coughs> it seems, and it's probably just luck and happenstance about the, the course and the history of it, it just signals... All sorts of things beyond golf. It's, it's the start of summer for me. It's it, I've got all sorts of sort of uh, memories of Faldo and Lyle, and you know, in the eighties, on of that sort of generation where those those moments were very uh, important. So there is an emotional bit to it. Now, given it's a sports business uh, or sports pro podcast, we are looking. There is also a fan, it's, a, it's the case study I think in terms of brand control <coughs> and sport. So when we're looking at sports marketing and marketing generally, quite often we're saying that okay, it's all about more stuff. You know, we're flooded with content and we're looking at events and every rights holder is trying to churn events, trying to squeeze as much money out of the sports as they can. The Masters just is the opposite of that and has benefited hugely from that because it just is has complete control over its brand. So it you know it, it right down to and Steve will, will tell us in a minute how much the sandwiches were. Which one? Steve, Steve Martin. <laughs> I'm just queuing up his, his, uh, his, 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 his Augusta anecdote because he was there. But it's the price of the uh, you know, concessions right through to the way in which they negotiate TV rights. CBS is negotiated year by year since 1956. They didn't allow people on the uh, cameras beyond... Um, the 12th or the 11th hole for until sort of the 70s there's all sorts of negative stories about the masters obviously mm-hmm. but if we're looking at it from a um, purely commercial perspective i think it's probably the best managed um, sports event or best controlled sports event yeah. that i can think of there are there are only a few i mean you could put in wimbledon and, and you know the olympics as as examples of that but from certainly in golf if you if you compare um, the Masters and it benefits from being at Augusta every year, they shut the course for six months of the year, so it's in perfect condition. It's fantastic on television. Um, it is sending all sorts of negative signals about 
water. It, the green, you know, it's painted a picture of golf it, that is green and mm. is unsustainable. Is you know, freezing azaleas is is one of their tricks, isn't it? I I believe so. They're, they've got a whole, you know, there's a science to just you know the way in which they present the whole thing, and mm. and you know, enormous <coughs> hundreds of millions of dollars spent on it, but it's it's pristine, but it's also um, just fantastic to watch. And it was interesting over the weekend in that normally it's very exciting, and then it became very exciting towards the end, but it was pretty hard going, you know, and they, mm. the, the argument being that to protect the course, they didn't want someone winning, you know, 20, 25 under. So they've <coughs> tricked up the course, the greens were unbelievably fast, and therefore um, it made it really hard to... To, to score and mm. traditionally you know Augusta is all about someone coming from deep blah 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 yeah it was a, a, a couple of bills in that I think the um, talking about tricking up the course the wind was the thing that changed it all I mean the wind was extraordinary uh, I mean I've been very lucky to beat the last four masters um, and last week was the first time when you weren't sweltered mm. um, from heat it was cooler uh, but the wind was blowing and when the wind goes in through there it circulates so it almost goes in circles and the ball was spinning off greens and you saw I think Billy Horschel his ball was blowing back yeah. off the green into the water so he was about to putt for a birdie when it had a six so it, the, the, the course when you walk into Augusta is extraordinary I think Steve I'm sure you've been there as well when it looks like a green carpet it's been rolled out it looks like Disneyland and when you walk up to it you think you know what that rough is nothing like the open or you know there's no rough and the greens look brilliant, and it looks, you know, they were playing a few of the holes as well off forward tee. So the fourth hole is normally a 240 yard par three. It was 157 one of the days. So they were, they were playing with it, but I think the wind was the decisive factor. Mm. But as, as Richard said, it's, to me, the Masters is uh, the abject lesson in how to manage a brand. Mm. I mean, it's, it's the control is extraordinary. I think you talk about the CBS deal done on a one-year deal. From what I hear, there's not even a fee is exchanged. Um, and, you know, the world that we live in from managing brands and sponsorships around properties, uh, you, you've got two tiers of brands. Obviously, there you've got the, the US-based um, partners, which are AT&T, I think. Mercedes have stepped up to that. And yeah, IBM. And then in, you've got an, an international group, which is UPS and Rolex. So... But they're getting great value out of it because mm. of its an, an enduring appeal and just the values it, it creates. Okay. But the one thing I would say that the Master does better than of any other sporting event, and again, Steve, I'm sure you'll um, have an input into this from the events you've been at, is that I really wish some of the big sporting events would take a lesson from it because you do not feel ripped off. Um, and I understand there's a liaison offers, or chief liaison offers that, that operates between the All England Club running Wimbledon and the Masters. And there's no way they're taking the learnings of having a, a beer for $2.50 and a sandwich for $1.50 and queues that go like that and toilets that work like that. It's an absolute masterstroke of how to look after people. Yeah, so you're, you're suggesting then basically that as exclusive as Augusta... Um, is perceived to be that the experience of actually going as a spectator is it, is not it, it, quite it's the in kind my of mind second to none, and and it's um, you're treated so brilliantly from the moment you go into those queues to the moment you leave, and it's you know Augusta's a weird place. This when you walk in there, you think, wow, this this beautiful, stunning um, piece of land, 
but when you walk out you're like on an american highway with a hooters down the road and a mcdonald's next door and guys so it's it's quite bizarre but i think it's that juxtaposition of it that makes it so appealing mm. but you're absolutely looked after and you have you know how many events do you go to whether it's music film any live event that you go to now whether you're taking your family or not you feel a bit ripped off and actually what i thought the masters has done They've put the money back into making the event so special for what they call their patrons, um, even protecting it from when it goes on, on TV. So it's more mm. special to be there, right through to the merchandise and the, and, and the food and the, and the drinks, that you come away feeling magical about the place. And I think that's, if any brand can do that to you, it's onto something special. I mean, it's, it's interesting, to, sorry, Steve, I know no, we're going to jump in. It's just the um, one question, you know, to, to throw it forward finally is is to say, whether they can control that, the brand, in the era of social media and digital, you know, when everything is demanded in clips and now we're seeing, um, you know, hole by hole almost, you know, you can almost follow, you can follow it on Twitter and you can, it's just incredible that the, the output, but the control comes back, you know, can they maintain that air of exclusivity in an air, you know, in an era where everything is, is free and you've got everyone demands it everywhere I think they will I think you know the way they're they were trying out new things again it's seen as a very traditional event mm. but it's that tradition merged with innovation I mean they're the first time you had virtual reality on the 6th and 16th holes so they're really trying to think that 4k um, TV broadcast on an MN corner for the first time their social media you know Instagram up over high, half a million Twitter's up over 200,000 you've got you know there's a growing they're a very very aware organisation so they're not sitting there waiting for things to happen and we'll do the same thing year on year. They're moving with the times, but in a very controlled manner. Um, and I think that's part of its appeal. Yeah, I mean, it does strike me that there seems to be a, a class of events, not to use the term too advisedly when we're talking about Augusta, but a class of events that is able to stay premium in, in amongst all the stuff that, that Richard's talking about. Um, but there is another side to that as well. And, and Steve, how how big a story is it still? Um, you know, some of the the more elitist accusations that that follow the Masters around. Well, I, I think you, you know the the worst of the controversies have passed for the moment. When we had the, we had the stories about you know the membership being restricted, no no women, no black people, all that that seems to have been overcome a bit for the time being. So that's not been the main story. The main story and what I think people are talking about today and still today is just the drama of what happened on the course. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a human interest story that was. I mean, you know, how many people thought going from a five-shot lead to a three-shot deficit in 38 minutes or whatever it was for Jordan Spieth. I mean, it's, 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 that's the thing that people, I think, are still talking about today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's an event that I wonder if people will fairly or unfairly remember it as a tournament that was lost rather than a tournament that was won because it depends what side of the pond you're on again. Yeah, I think that's part it's of the interesting because in the states certainly the story was was Spieth losing the tournament you know from from a hugely winning position I think Willett probably is not getting as much credit over there as he is here which so it's it's seen in different eyes but and it's a little bit of it you, you can look back to when when um, when Faldo you know beat Norman and 20 years ago you know that was a six shot lead I think Norman yeah. held and that's many people recall that as Norman losing the tournament well, I think that's right? the narrative they're trying to create I mean I think you boil it down it was one hole yeah exactly 
but he wasn't swinging well and you know you, you saw he was absolutely Spieth was keeping himself in it from incredible pitching and the most ridiculous putting you've ever seen but mm. like your putting Richard yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think people have said that certainly not mine um, it was actually incredible what he was doing just even stay in the lead you know yeah. and uh, if half the other guys could putt even half as good as he could they'd win it by a mile yeah I mean the 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 whole media perception around players winning things, players losing things, you know, narratives around um, around that kind of aspect of sport is something we can we can maybe touch on a bit in the, in in part two. But um, something I wanted to ask you about, as someone who's just been to the Masters, what what's the story with the pimento cheese sandwich? Everybody goes mad about this cheese sandwich. I mean, we had couple of guys I went with and took to the Masters and never uh, hadn't been but it was the, one of the first things they talked about this pimento cheese sandwich and the peach ice cream I'm thinking I haven't had one of them in the last three years um, but I, I, it really is a, a, they, they market it beautifully the products are so like, like everything's branded I think the only thing that wasn't branded was a banana um, but everything else is and the food as I say is such high quality it's such low price Um and the queues, you think, oh, no, I'm going to be standing here for 25 minutes. You're through in five. Mm. Um, so I think half half the fun of being there is the social side of, of being at a golf event. Golf traditionally is not great to watch live. Um, as we all know, it's quite a hard graph. The Masters is a total, totally different proposition because of the undulations. You see a lot of things. But also the fact that you can get a drink like that and you get food and you walk around the course and... Um, as I say, going back to you, don't feel ripped off. It's very, very social, and mm. uh, it becomes just something you remember. I think I still think my favourite part of the Masters and why you remember it and why your experience is so much more emotional because you don't have your mobile phone with you. Mm. Um, and in this day and age, that can make people, quite a few people feel very uncomfortable. Though you're sort of looking for it during the day, but actually, it goes in through your eyes what you're seeing and stays there. And I think that to me is the number one thing why it's so brilliant. Mm. Well, let's let's move on from from the golf tournament of the Masters to the People's Race. Uh, the Grand National was run at Aintree on on Saturday. Um, another dramatic finish in that one, which cost me some money. Um, what what is it about the the National? It's operating in some ways at a different end of the scale, that it's much more inclusive. And but what is it that they're doing well? How are they staying relevant? The problem with the national is was the excitement of the national, which is the horses, the you know the size of the fences, the danger, the jeopardy. That's what made it exciting. Unfortunately, it's a bit like Formula One in the old days. But obviously, we don't want that. We don't want horses dying. We don't want people dying. So the the sort of the 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 modern era, if you like, has cleansed it and has taken some of that danger element away, mm. which may have detracted from the from the appeal of it. And also, it is it is a it is one one moment. It's not you know. I'm not sure that I'm I'm sort of. I think Cheltenham is is more interesting. More yeah, I mean that definitely is a is a major factor. It's a big moment in the year for for the betting industry, obviously, because for an awful lot of people, that's going to be their one bet of the year. Yeah. Um, but that is a, I suppose, a different concept. How do you manage an event that is? Those five minutes, it probably doesn't matter to most people that it's on at three o'clock or five fifteen. I, mean, I think if if it went to Sky, we wouldn't be talking about it now. I mm. think you know it's on the be- it's it's profile on the beach. It's like the boat race. It's like boat you know TV. there's a it's got a moment in the in the light. It's where public or, or you know free to air broadcasting still has an impact, and I think it's still on the map because of that. 
you know, mm. and I think that if it wasn't, I'm not sure it would. I think it's also needed a, a really, really brilliant sponsor because you've all the betting firms because they can't take a betting sponsor. All the betting firms are associated with it by default, I guess. But needs a brilliant sponsor to take take it as a property and innovate around it. I mm. think because that's half the battle. You can do so much through the broadcast, but you need something that you know a, a sponsor is going to build the brand of the national and. and you know, create the hype and the story right up to the moment. So it's not just this moment that comes and goes. The, the numbers were very good, so that sort of says for itself it's worked. Um, but if you were to almost take a helicopter view of it, you would change an awful lot, I think, and keep its appeal rooted in the masses, and that's what it should be. It should be a big national moment. But it's almost becoming a bit missable for me. Um, and that's wrong. It shouldn't be. You want to protect these things. But if you, if you don't see it, you're not broken-hearted by it. Mm. Whereas you, you you sort of want those big moments where there's an FA Cup final or whatever well, it may be. Well, you know yeah. that was unmissable and is now missable. Mm. But of course, the FA Cup final also has the context of an entire football season yeah. and okay, is so ninety minutes long. I'll withdraw it. Steve, I want to bring you in just. Uh, from a North American perspective, is there is there something peculiarly national about the Grand National? Yeah, very much so. It's, to me, it's a you know quintessentially British event, uh, part of the tradition here that people, you know, families like to watch you know every year and bet on it and 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 have sweepstakes in the office and all that. So I've been here long enough to to feel that and get involved in it in some sense. But but when I first came here, I knew very little about it, you know and. It, it doesn't have that big an audience in the states, for example, where horse racing is, has its own big races. The Triple Crown essentially is what people follow. You know, there are three races that people will follow. This one event is uh, is peculiar to have one singular event uh, like this every year. And um, I wasn't here last week to to experience this, so I can't speak firsthand this time. And I've never been to Aintree, although I would like to. But uh, it, it intrigued me as a as a very British event, and and with a lot of things going for it. But I think it all depends. From a, from my perspective, on the storylines that be each year behind them, if there's a great storyline, a horse going for you know some milestone or a jockey or a trainer, there's always seems to be something there that you can really grab hold onto as a from a media standpoint or a fan or human human uh, perspective. So that I enjoy it. Say it's similar to the, as you mentioned the boat race. I I again I appreciate it for its 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 Englishness or its Britishness and I. Uh, even though there's a lot of foreigners in the race, as we know, uh, I enjoy watching it every year uh, more than more, you know more than most of my colleagues. So I, I I enjoy those traditional events. The boat race, or the real people's race, as no one calls it. Um, another big story from the weekend and from the last few uh, months of the year. Um, Leicester City now, well, still seven points clear at the top of the Premier League table. Now this is a very interesting. Sport. I mean, it's a, an, ex, an extraordinary sports story, um, the like of which we've not seen for decades, particularly in Premier League football. But as a sports industry story, we, we you know, the Premier League global brand, Manchester United, Liverpool, you know, uh, Chelsea, Man City, Arsenal, global brands. Can Leicester City make that leap? Is this going to be the equivalent of someone coming from the middle of the field to win the Masters and and never doing anything again. I mean, beyond the fact that well, we don't know what's going to happen to them on the pitch next year. As a Spurs fan, um, I'm as a Spurs fan, I'm going to disregard <laughs> the rest of your opinions. I'm hoping it's a sort of uh, Jordan Spieth at the twelfth 
thing coming up. No, I think I agree. It's a fantastic story, and it's the most Spurs season ever to lose to Leicester. You know, um, so in terms of the the business bit, I mean, there was an interesting moment probably a month or two ago where um, there was that story about uh, the, the Charlie Silitano. But it was, you know, about brands and you know, whether or not they can, um, you know, leveraging the value of the Leicester brand, and it's not going you know, to. It's a. It's an irritation to the to certain people. There is a strand of of thinking in the sports business, which is that. Oh well, Leicester is actually getting in the way of the story, and, and they, they, you know, there's a sort of, there is a, uh, there are people who find more joy in the sort of Deloitte rich list than they do in the Premier League table as it stands today, and that's um, that's uh, that's disagreeable, you know, and it's it's unpleasant because actually it's a fantastic sports story, and those people will then turn around and say, oh well, let's try and leverage the Leicester brand, and let's do this and do that, and my concern is that marketing quite often fucks things up you know it quite often is a complete it, it, it is an unnuanced thing it's about channels and it's about content and it needs to compress I'm talking about marketing in its broadest sense you know in terms of its you know at its at its worst it's, it, and, and it's trying to take something quite delicate and push it through a channel um, and sometimes it doesn't fit and Leicester won't fit that channel and mm. actually but people will try and make it fit that, you know, and, and that's that's the problem with this, and that's the problem with the sort of the way in which the sports marketing industry is sometimes set up. I think it's like a, you know, seen as a tube where you just process. Um, but it's a fantastic story. I mean, something like um, Leicester taking part in in the International Champions Cup pre-season tournament, which they're going to be doing this year, is that a way of embellishing Leicester as a as a brand, as a global presence, or is it a way of the International Champions Cup saying, "Look, it doesn't matter who the best people are; we're going to invite them, and and they're going to be a, a part of our." I guess, I guess they can't control that. Um, they'll get whoever wins. You know, you can't control anything. Uh, who's going to win any league? Um, I mean, I think of back to think about the Leicester brand and them growing it and it, their their broader commercial appeal. Um, the truth of it is it's a, they have a very small fan base whether we like it or not and that's the brutal reality of it um, the story is brilliant and I think everybody who's a neutral um, have taken on whether again apart from a few Spurs fans maybe a few Arsenal fans thinking you know, Leicester become their second team if, if you like so the story's absolutely brilliant I just feel this could be one moment in time mm. um, it doesn't mean the world's going to you know, turn on it Access and suddenly the, all the coffers are going to from the global sports industry going to pile into Leicester. They're not. You've got to remember Leicester, by the way. It's not that much of a shock. And um, if you dig a little bit deeper into this, you know they had a hundred million pound investment by their Thai owners. Mm. Only you know the back end of it in the football league. They haven't done this on a shoestring. So there's a bit of perception of these guys have come from nowhere. They haven't. Um, they built a team, a very good structure. Okay, they're a young team. They play in a certain way. They've got a manager who's very experienced. Has come through brilliantly, but it doesn't arise from the you know the ashes, and then they've suddenly come out of nowhere. I don't think. So I think there's a bit of reality needs to come in on that. Um, albeit, again, the emotion around the story is terrific. 
there's just it's not going to change. The big thing for Leicester is about what they do with the opportunity, mm. and how they do it, and how they work with the broadcast partners to help maintain that, if you like, because it could be a one-hit wonder. Who knows? It could be brilliant next year, two, the next two or three years. The biggest thing that's going to happen to all the clubs right down the Premier League is the, is the broadcast money coming in in August. Mm. You know, the bottom club I think gets ninety-seven million. Ninety-seven million. Um, the top gets 140 or something so yeah. there's no big gap uh, I don't know the exact numbers at the top but there's no huge gap so a lot of these teams are going to it's going to condense um, and I see you know more and more teams are going to have a chance to, to do a Leicester um, so just there's a, there's a, and Steve will talk to this far more uh, informative than I can but there is a it's the Green Bay Packers analogy isn't it in terms of always in the American sport there was you know the NFL is creates and protects the Leicester cities, i.e. Mm. the Green Bay Packers, smallest team in the smallest media market, um, because of the system. And actually it's quite... I mean, to a point, it doesn't protect them once they move somewhere else or go out of business or whatever else. I mean, yeah, they're, they're still... The, 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 the culture of closed leagues mm. means that... I don't know, you, uh, is that... Is that, well, a, is that an analogy? Well, that the Packers are unique in that they are the only NFL team that don't have a, an owner. They're owned by the fans. Yeah. And so they have this unique structure in, the, in, in their own right, which I think mm. has, has, has kept them going the way they go. And, they, and um, it's just run in a different way from all the other teams, and it's worked. So yeah. they are special. But it, it, it is interesting. You talk about um, the discussions that were had earlier in the season with, uh, with Charlie Celisano and that meeting, infamous meeting of five Premier League clubs, none of whom are doing anywhere near as well as they should yeah. this season trying to make it less important that they don't do as well as they should mm. each season. Diversion tactic almost. But hey, that's a, a nice note to finish part one on. Um, join us again in just a few moments. Welcome back to part two, or welcome to part two of the Sports Pro Podcast. Um, we've been talking a fair bit about some of the sporting events of the past weekend, a packed weekend in the world of sport. And we're now going to talk a bit about some of the personalities behind that and about the marketability of professional athletes. Um, let's start, because we've already talked about the Masters, let's start about the, the dynamic between um, Jordan Spieth and, and Danny Willett. I mean, the, the story has been told that it's on one side of the Atlantic, Spieth is... Losing and on the other side, you know, you have this this unlikely victor from the pack. Um, why is it that we feel the need to to create these dynamics? And it can't just be they played seventy two holes of golf and somebody else played fewer shots. That's what it should be, I guess. It, um, I think the Masters is an interesting one because it it goes back to you know the Greg Norman collapse against Faldo all those years ago. So there's been a history of collapsing. Um, around the Masters of what Augusta does to people it makes grown men make their knees tremble and, 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 and panic it can do that to you because of the nature of the place and the history it's, it, it's created um, but I think that's always going to be the case you know you'll we're up there to sort of build these guys personalities and up there when they do reach the peak up there to be knocked it seems um, so I think Jordan Spieth got a almost was pretty hard done by because he handled it really well. You know, the guy is five shots clear of nine holes to play. 
he wasn't swinging the ball particularly well. He was staying in the hole tournament by incredible pitching and putting, as we talked about earlier. But um, it was one hole mm. where his head just melted, you know, and, and they had. But um, you've got to say that Danny Willett, as a character, was monumentally strong. I mean, when he turned around and probably saw on the back of uh, coming off 15, at the back of 15 is the biggest scoreboard in Augusta. When you look around, he probably clocked there and then that, that, that what had happened with Steve and he goes and nails his next shot on 16 and holds it for a birdie so you've got interesting characters and great stories around it um, my personal view is Jordan Spieth will come back uh, very very strongly he's, he's, he's got it in him but he handles himself beautifully and you know, leaning on the how we market athletes and how we how they manage their careers over a period of time you know Jordan Spieth is I think he ha- will have that ability to transcend the game. Um, whether Danny Willett or not will, will remain to be seen. He's not sort of a one-hit one wonder. I don't think he will be. I think he'd go on and, and, and win a number of things. But these are sort of the local media taking on those local stories and, and presenting them as they see fit to their sort of um, nationalistic audiences. Mm. I mean, so the, this becomes basically a part of, of the Jordan Spieth story. That yeah, he would lost yeah, this tournament. Just on that, and I, so because winning is boring, essentially, and you know, and stories are about conflict, and therefore, you know, characters need to go up and down. And McElroy's never been more interesting than when he was losing at, at, the August, at Augusta yeah. a couple of years ago, yeah. and then he came back and won the U.S. Open. And if he'd have just won the Masters, then won the U.S. Open, Lee Jansen won the U.S. Open twice. You know, Andy North won the U.S. Open twice. These are people you you wouldn't know if they walked in this bar, you know, and and we don't care because winning is boring. But if unless it's like a, a um, even someone like Federer needs Nadal, even someone like Borg needed McEnroe, it's like a you know we need conflict because that's the basis of a story, and and that's golf is is particularly sort of wedded to it because it's it's if you you know you go back. To Walter Hagen and Gene Sarazen in the sort of twenties and thirties, you know, Palmer. yeah, Hogan and Sneed, all of these. There is a you can see, and the move from being those those are those were sort of organic, if you like, uh, um, conflicts. But increasingly, the you know there is a commercial aspect to this because the need for McElroy against Spieth. You felt it on Saturday. They, there was, you know, Nike versus Under Armour. Ricky Fowler had gone. Um, you had Jason Day of Adidas. Ricky Fowler's Puma. There is a huge. There are huge commercial engines behind these now, and so this isn't just an organic thing. It's not the same as Nicholas and Palmer. And don't forget, at the start of the Masters, in the build-up to the week, it was about those three guys: about J- J- um, Rory McIlroy, Jordan Spieth, and Jason Day. That was the whole story leading mm. up to it. They were almost it was created before they'd even hit a tee shot. So it's these highs and lows that makes them so enduring, and that applies to any sport. You know, Eric Cantona right back when the highs and lows he went through, but his appeal is beyond thing. Ali, you know, Muhammad Ali with Frazier, you know, the stories around that and the highs and lows he went through. So it can only be good for Jordan Spieth, um, and it's part of their narrative. It's not, it's not false. It's mm. not created. So real and so raw, and I actually think that the comeback will be a more interesting story again. But like he's he's, he's ready to hold her, and he's <laughs> yeah. 
21. Yeah, I mean, he's a great player. There is a, there is something about Spieth which is, and it's. I think it talks to this. You can't manufacture it. I think you know he is likable, and you know someone like Palmer was likable. He is charismatic, but there is something in him that people warm to, and there is something in Spieth that. Um, I warm to you know people just generally there is I, I like him whether it's and you know you, you could say someone like Beckham who Steve knows you know tons more about than anyone there is something in Beckham Beckham should get on our nerves by now you know he's been in my life for 20 years <laughs> and he's been famous world famous for a very long time but there is still something in him that I like and I don't think you can manufacture that I don't think the marketing people can manufacture it's just there but it comes down to one, you know, one or two things. Jordan Spieth's one of his great appeals is how humble he is. We'll talk about this and maybe we move on to Anthony Joshua and other characters mm. and how sports stars can have that enduring appeal and, yeah. and you know not just a one male audience either. You know it's how they diversify their, their their whole appeal. I think is really incredible, but it has to come from an area that's unforced and unnatural. If you look at the way Jordan Spieth and Steve, I'm sure you've seen him around a golf course. He talks to everybody. He's continually talking to his caddy. He's talking to the other player. He's not like Tiger would walk away in front. He wouldn't even look back. But he's spinning on the course. This guy's a class act, and he handles himself beautifully. This is why Under Armour have put everything behind. It's why AT and T have, have, have done an enormous deal with them. It's why he's becoming the face of the golf. He's very young, Coke. You know, so Coke, Coke recently. So. He is he is a class act, and um, you can't help but like him. So you feel his pain, and we all felt his pain, um, because he's he, he, he's got it. And actually, I think the highs and lows will be in his career will make him. I think it's, even a, I think it's just a, last Sunday just added colour. You know, I I think it's just a, a a really it made him more human. And I like the fact he had to present the green jacket. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Horrendous for him. I mean, worst. What a weird ceremony that is, still, <laughs> but brilliant and, and tradition at the same time. But the fact he had to do that and the fact the way he handled it, you know, these are all little moments that people remember. I think the fact that for an average fan to see, you know, a star of this magnitude is vulnerable too. That he's human, like he's dependent. He he can he can hit, get seven on a, on a on a par three, and um, I think that adds maybe in the end the big picture to his appeal, as you point out. And I think the story going ahead will it will be Jordan Spieth, you know. He, he he took his hits and now he's coming back and he's going to win again. So I I think it adds to the whole Jordan Spieth aura more than more than if he had won as a machine. You know, mm. I don't think people like machines, Absolutely. and he was perhaps being seen as winning as a machine the way that tournament was going. Right, and this, you know, of course he doesn't want it to end this way, but in the in the long run it may it may add to his mystique. And you know, golf needs. Golf needs this because Tiger's out of the picture. I think the numbers in terms of TV numbers for the Masters has been really up and down in the last four or five years, um, particularly in the US. Um, you know, when Tiger hasn't played, I think he played two out of the last five, last seven. Those times he did play, the numbers went through the roof and they completely dropped when he hasn't. So golf is in a, in a scenario where it needs these sporting heroes that, that can transcend the game. Mm. I mean, the average televi- television viewing age is 57 years old for golf. Under 25 um, is 5%. Under 25 years of age is mm. 5% of the viewing audience. So it's got a real problem. And I think whenever 
um, you see somebody coming through who is 21, 22, and McElroy's only 26, and Jason Day's in around that same age. That golf is pinning its hopes on those mm. guys, and you know to have highs and lows and ongoing stories is, is exactly what we need, and they've got to bring that audience number down from 57 years old or under 35. <laughs> it's going to be a huge challenge, but that takes us into a whole new new world. Let's talk about someone who you mentioned him there, Steve, who did not emphatically did not lose at the weekend, and in fact has been winning more or less as a machine, but is very much not greeted as a machine, and that is Anthony Joshua, the, the newest of uh, the heavyweight division's world champions. What is it that he has, and is there an extent to which an Anthony Joshua is kind of fulfilling an archetype? He's the champion, he's a, a nice kid who, while he's brilliant, kind of, you know, grandma loves him as much as everybody else does. I think with, with Anthony Joshua, I mean, I've been... Uh, quite lucky um, to work in and around boxing for a long time um, through the days in Adidas we looked after Prince Nassim Hamed which was a hell of a, a journey working with him um, talk about highs and lows was, was again pretty extraordinary but you could see whenever it was done well the repeal is pretty unique um, but boxing has, and boxers have become a bit sort of stereotypical in that it's all about flashness flash cars, flash suits, you know, behaving and misbehaving. And um, I think where boxing has, has an opportunity, it's been desperate for, for a big, hev- successful, glamorous heavyweight for a long time. I'm not saying Tyson Fury isn't that, but, <laughs> but you've got somebody in, in Joshua who, if he can continue to have this humble approach, it'll completely be the juxtaposition of where boxing has been over the last 15, 20 years. Lennox Lewis had a bit of it, but again, struggled with his appeal a bit. Um, so he's got this opportunity. Now, you just hope that he takes it, because I think he has got all the dimensions. He's a, he's a good guy. He talks very well. His training regime is second to none. He opens that up. He's now got a good sponsor and partner in Under Armour come on board, which, again, brands have shied away from that a bit over the last five, ten years since, since Naz was about. Um, maybe Amir Khan had a bit of it in the early days with Reebok but um, I think if he can continue to do that and handle himself in that way and not fall into this sort of gangster look and and, and, and how he projects himself and how he articulates himself himself, um, he's got a hell of an opportunity and I think it really needs it, it really needs it and it needs it both this side of, of the pond and in the US because I think the US is crying out for it as well Steve maybe maybe yeah, Nobody I mean, I disagree with that. No, I don't. I mean, I haven't been around uh, him enough to, to have a, a full opinion. But my, what I've seen of, of him is is very positive. I mean, he clearly has, you know, his head on his shoulders. He's he's a guy who doesn't seem ready to go off the rails like a lot of these guys are doing now. And he's complete opposite in the image of Tyson Fury, for example. And you know, he okay, the problem with boxing there are many, and uh, Klitschko. Is not seen as a bad guy, but he's not seen as an exciting guy, right? And no one really sees him as the future of the sport, even though he's no longer the champion. But I think you know uh, he, this 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 guy has a chance to 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 raise above the rest mm-hmm. and and have a positive image for boxing and be a good boxer too. The guy the guy's good. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm hoping I'm hoping to see him continue to progress and become you know win some other titles and. And, uh, the, the only thing, watch it. I mean, yeah. he's a supreme athlete, and yeah. I think that will 
you've got you know to have those knockouts you, you look at Charles Martin he wasn't that great really no, but not in great condition and the mm-hmm. boxing always has that until he steps up and, and really fights any of the big boys yeah, but the heavyweight so division is is again it's you know when you've got Tyson Fury being the, the world champion you sort of think well is this is this the golden era boxing we're looking mm-hmm. for I don't think it is um, the big change in all these guys and I've seen it for 20 odd years working in this game is when they get money so at the moment, Anthony Joshua is in that period of his career where he's earning good money. Let's be honest, compared to the, the, the man in the street, of course he is. Um, but money changes people. Mm. And money, particularly in the boxing, can be ridiculously high around certain fights because of what they can command um, globally. You know, it is a truly global sport. Mm. Um, and, and I think really you just hope he doesn't fall into that trap I don't think he he, he will because he's not a flash character mm. he's, he seems to come from that more humble base but money changes people and that again and boxing in particular is the big watch out it's, it's interesting um, he seems to kind of uh, straddle both sides of, of the appeal of boxing you've got a, a guy who's humble who apparently has had his life changed by being a, a serious boxer first at amateur level and, and then as a professional but he also knocks people out, which is the kind of the everyman, you know, the, the mainstream fans route into the sport is is that kind of dramatic appeal. Um, at the same time, um, you know, are, are we on the kind of an upward swing of, of his narrative? Are we waiting for something to, to go wrong? I, just, I mean, I, the, what strikes me is that this is quite... It's interesting. We talk about golf and rivalries, and now we're talking about boxing and stars. You know, and this is, is in some ways, it's a sort of um, a pre-UFC conversation. <clears throat> that this UFC was created to eliminate the sort of sp- spikes in demand that boxing suffered from. If you were from a from a business perspective, so that you know the Ali Frazier, Hagler Duran, all of those fights were fantastic, and we remember them. But actually, if you're selling boxing, you get a very very spiky demand and UFC's has taken away almost it's de- it's taken the stars out and the and the brand is the star so people go to a UFC fight and it's almost like you know like a sort of formula 1 race so it's it, i don't quite know where boxing is going and it's working to that old don king model you know i'm going to make you a superstar and the money is part of it and you know you say that the sort of the 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 lifestyle, all of those things have always been part and parcel of boxing marketing and, mm. the, you know, the, the, the trash talk, all of that stuff. And UFC is, has taken that and said, right, okay, we want, people want to see, you know, the shit kicked out of people, but we're doing it without, you don't have to, um, you know, follow a particular brand or whatever. So it's like a, it's, it's flattened that demand. Yeah. And actually, from a business perspective, it's a really, really smart move. I'm not a huge fan you know, but what of boxing? No, of or UFC. UFC. I, I mean, mean I think boxing is. You know, you've got this debate now about you know the, the safety aspects, mm. and the UFC is just like white work. Yeah, it's just extraordinary. But but it's it's you know, very appealing to a certain audience, and you certainly um, can't say it's not popular. Mm. Incredibly popular. I mean, we did ask. Uh, we had David Hay at the brand conference, the the former WBA heavyweight champion. Um, and I put the question to him, would you prefer to be in a UFC model where you've got pegged incomes and you've got a little bit of um, 
you know, surety when it comes to matchmaking and so on. And he mm. said, you know what? I'm the guy who goes in there. I want to make the money. I'm the guy who, who's generated all of that money around the yeah. event. Well, if um, I'm David Hay, I agree. But yeah. if I'm, you know, the bloke who's hitting, I'm not agreeing. You mm. know, as in, it's, it's sort of, for every David Hay or every, you know, uh, Mayweather, there are thousands of boxers who never make it, you know, mm. and, and, you know, are just the fodder. And they, it's, it's, well, who knows? But uh, as I say, it's, it's a, it's a straight. It, it, the, the other bit to it is again, if you lay the technology thing, you know, inevitable technology question over this, UFC in a Twitter environment is incredibly successful. You know, it's just, it's just clips and and that sort of short form video. And we've seen the NFL and you know those those deals being done, but that feels like the sort of the energy in the sports business. <coughs> if you're a sport that can conjure almost limitless content in that small short form video, it's that's. But the sport allows itself because every hit mm. is quite dramatic. Yeah. You've got the Joshua heads over in one punch. Mm. I think you can't Joshua do that. Play for uh, sadly, there's you know one issue for him is is he too nice a guy because you know um, he's going to have to build rivalries that to sell tickets you know and it's not about being nice in those circumstances yeah, you'd, you'd love him but, uh, you'd love him to be around or to have been around in the Tyson era yes. because that would have been a scenario that the bad guy versus the good guy well this and, this know, is the thing and this is kind of coming back to what I was talking about with with the um, <laughs> with the archetypes before I mean Lewis v Tyson which was a fight that was probably 10 years past its sell-by date, was presented as the champion versus kind of the, the force that nobody else could stop, although several people had by that point. Um, and perhaps that's kind of the, the, what will emerge with, um, with Joshua and, and Fury not, not too far down the line. But let's, um, let's move on to another kind of, of athlete marketing story, and that is the kind of uh, the Danny Willett or, or indeed the Carlos Brathwaite who emerged from the, the World T20 um, a couple of weeks ago and, and a little bit for Leicester City. I mean, where, you know, from a, from a marketing perspective, how long do you have to strike while the iron's hot and how long do you have to wait before you think we've actually got the real deal here? Well, you know, just, just, no, sorry, Steve, but just, just to put some uh, facts in this, uh, Nigel Curry said it's 10 million quid in the evening stand. So that's, that's the framework that we're working for, for which one of those? Okay, I was going to say that's not a lot of money for Leicester City. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I think it's very hard to compare those the, the two examples. I mean, the thing with golfers is they've got a career that when they're 50, they go to another career. I go on the seniors tour, so they end up playing golf. They have a 40 to 45 year career, which is quite unbelievable. So they've got the opportunity week in, week out. Um, somebody like uh, you know the, the West Indies team. I mean, they've got these moments in time, of course, like you know, World Twenty Twenty we've just seen. But cricket's biggest drama is there's too much cricket, and um, it's sort of all evolved into one. You know, you, you, it's it's just there's no air in between them any the, the the events. I think also I'm not sure the way they handled it, the win. Um, wasn't particularly great. I, I mm. thought they actually came across as very arrogant, had a swagger that I didn't like. Although he actually came across incredibly well in his did mind. He? I don't think he did. I think he came across 
hard go, but then you saw him then the next day sitting at the press conference with his feet up on the table. I think that was Marvin Samuels. Oh, Samuels. Yeah. I think Carlos Brathwaite went and swapped his shirt with Ben okay. Stokes and did lots of nice things like that. He he knew he he knew to kind of uh, to humble it up a bit. But I think that you know they have an opportunity. Everybody has has loved the West Indies as a team for you because you, you, they've had that flamboyance about them. Well, you, well, you sort of wanted to love them. Wanted, but they've been very hard to love since sort of the late eighties. Well, also I think they're they're pretty like they don't support Test cricket at all. Mm. They're commercial animals, you know. When it comes down to it, they only yeah. want to play T Twenty and and feel that. So it's, I don't know. I think they're hard to like at at, at, at this moment in time. Um, as you say, since the eighties, they've been hard to like. But they're a team that has that sort of flamboyance and characters, and um, again, an opportunity to be the smiley, happy team that everybody loves. And but I'm not sure they're doing that. Um, mm. But they're very talented boys, obviously. Um, because they've had that focus and relentless focus on being T20 players. Okay, we're getting dangerously close to just talking about West Indies cricket, which we covered last time. So, um, I... Uh I've, I've literally said one sentence about West Indies cricket. <laughs> Welcome to the third and final part of the Sports Pro podcast. We are speaking... Uh, a week ahead of the Sport Accord convention in the Olympic capital of Lausanne. Um, it's been an interesting couple of years for the Sport Accord movement, if there is such a thing, and it's been an interesting couple of years for the Olympic movement. Um, Steve, you're going to tell us a little bit about this. What can we expect from, from Sport Accord this year? Well, it's uh, going through big changes, because last year at the Sport Accord convention in Sochi, uh, there was a mini revolution took place when the head of the Sport Accord, Marius Wieser, uh, used his opening speech to blast the Olympic movement, uh, the Olympic IOC president, and and um, his reforms, and which led to essentially his a backlash where many federations pulled out, the IOC rebelled, and uh, Sport Accord essentially collapsed uh, as we know it. So it's being rebuilt at the moment into well, we're not sure what. So the, the complication is there's a sport accord is two things. So there's a sport accord convention, which is being held next week in Lausanne, and there is a sport accord, which is a body representing sports federations. So mm-hmm. this is part of the problem that uh, it's got the same, you know, two things represented by the same name doing two different things. Uh, there's been talk of, of uh, how, to, how, to, how to change that, but there, there's no decision yet. So anyway, the convention in Lausanne uh, next week uh, will be kind of a, uh, a testing point to see where the movement is headed uh, or not. I think it's still a bit of an identity crisis situation now where we have to decide what Sport Accord is, what it's meant to do, who's involved in it, what the whole point of it is. I think none of those answers are quite clear yet. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that will happen at this convention is an election for the president of Sport Accord mm-hmm. uh, itself, uh, the body federations, that is. They're going to elect a leader. There's only two candidates. One is Patrick Bauman. He's the general secretary of FIBA, the International Basketball Federation. He's also an IOC member. And the other candidate is much lesser known, and she's Russian. Her name is Anna Arzanova, and she's president of what is the World Underwater Federation. Uh, So she's not so well known. Uh, Speak for yourself, Steve. Yeah, well, true enough. 
Uh, but the presumption she is that pa- come up. <laughs> but the presumption would be that Patrick Bauman would be, you know, the heavy favorite to win because of his experience within the Olympic movement, mm-hmm. and pre- presumably is seen as the IOC favorite for the for the job. So that will be one of the events happening. Yeah, I mean, how much water did um, some of the comments that Marius Visa made at last year's event hold about the need for a world sports movement that is not the Olympics? Well, you know. This has been a power struggle that's gone on for for decades, really, with, with, between these groups representing the federations and the IOC, who who's really running the show here. And uh, in the end, it's always the IOC wins out. And I think he was, you know, waging a losing battle. I mean, you're not going to take on the IOC and win in this case. The idea that you know, so, okay, some of his points about how sports should be run perhaps have, have merit, but I think the mistake that he made is to challenge the IOC in a sense by saying, well, we can hold our own events. We're going to hold these United World Championship, as he called it, which is, you know, can be seen as an Olympics in another way, in another name, really, although it never developed that far. But the idea itself was a bit of a challenge to the Olympic movement, uh, you know, it, you know, in a, in a way. So it would never seem to, to be... Uh, headed for success and and for him to take on the IOC seemed to be a losing a losing battle to begin with and he lost so it's not that he's wrong in challenging how the sports movement should be run and should be more open or transparent and less uh, uh, run by people you know interconnected but the way he put it the way he tried to push this through and attack the IOC and say well, we can run it we can run our own sports events I think just didn't 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 mesh with what what he wanted to do in the end. Yeah, I mean you um, you made very uh, effective use of journalese there in the first mm-hmm. statement that you made. But it was a blast at at, um, at the IOC. It, it was it was not diplomatic, put it that way. It was, and it, and it seems like the level of aggression there was deliberate as well. Yeah, I think there was some history, some backdrop there. I think he. I don't think he ever got along with, with Thomas Bach. Uh, that was clear even before Thomas Bach was elected. Uh, I don't think they were going to be uh, best friends. And uh, the way he, he, he spoke with Bach, you know, sitting there in, front, in the front row, uh, and, 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 you know, it just seemed out of place at the time, and, and, and a political suicide in a sense. Mm. Um, what, just to, uh, to go back to the two presidential candidates for, for sports court itself, I mean... Do you see that as a, a straightforward dichotomy that you've got kind of the IOC candidate and the non-IOC? In a sense, yeah. You have one one candidate from the Olympic federations, his his being basketball, and one from the non-Olympic federations, hers being underwater events. So, yeah, there is a split there. In fact, you know, 50, I think it's about 50, more than 50, 50 of the 88 federations are non-Olympic sports. So there's, that's, there's a lot of them involved. And the... And, and the the goal is to find some sort of balance where all the federations can work together, and it's not an easy. It's not easy because mm-hmm. the non-Olympic federations have different agendas than the Olympic federations, of course. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is that, and it comes to the key question of what is sport accord needed for, is that you have Olympic federations already represented in their own associations. You have the Olympic Summer Sports Federations, you have the Olympic Winter Sports Federations, and so they they're already uh, working. Uh, with with the IOC and the organizing committees on their issues. So how do you bring in, you know, the, 
the needs of the non-Olympic federations at the same time. It's uh, it's tricky, and it always has been. It's, mm. it's you know it goes back to Gaifs when it was called Gaifs before Sport Accord, and mm. there were also power struggles there between Samaranch and Keller over the same over the, many of the same issues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Steve and uh, Richard, I wanted to bring you two in and, and kind of maybe open up the the discussion about Sport Accord beyond a purely federation and, and administrative. Um, cited perspective. I mean, Richard, what was your take on on what happened last year and and, and what it says about the way that that sport is run? Um, sorry, I've just I've just tweeted something which uh, might be libelous. Um, so the thing about the visor moment was actually he had a point, and it was presented. It got suffocated, and you know he got thrown out but the debate remains in terms of okay well what is it that the IOC does for sports that aren't in the IOC family and that's actually a very important point and it's one that that remains a very hot you know thing I, I didn't know the late the the, the, uh, the underwater thing mm-hmm. which um, I'd love to go to a committee meeting there yeah um, but it's like <laughs> a sort of uh, there is this split. There's a three-way split. You've got the IOC, you know, you've got the, the, the cosy club, which then rotates every now and then. You've also got this sort of second tier, which is sport court. Then you've got all these other sports that are trying to get into sport court, you know. So it's like a weird um, dynamic, which given... I always find sport court strange. I always find it a strange vibe when I'm there. Um, it's, it's... I think it's a bit like, you know, sort of... New Year's Eve, where you sort of think the best, the good, there's a good party going on somewhere, but I'm not at it. You know, it's like a sort of weird it's thing. There's a meeting, you know, meetings upon meetings, behind closed doors, and there's a conference, which is, you know, fine. It's just another conference, but it's you don't ever come away thinking, okay, I was, I was really close to the power. I don't anyway. Um, but having said that, there is a real opportunity, you know. We're talking about sport as a as a sort of as content. All of these sports governing bodies are sitting on masses, you know, huge gold mines of data, huge gold mines of, of just people that want to you know, or, or, or just be involved in their sports. Now, brands are not invited to sport. You know, they're this they're a sort of side issue. And I think the lack of visibility of Sport Accord and you know previously gave in the brand community in the you know in relation to people that could actually partner with them and and move them forward i think is probably an indictment in itself and i think that you know actually you know visor was a sort of is a intimidating character all of that backstory but actually he there was he was making some good points but people didn't want to hear them mm. i mean that was a, a that was a much better answer than you anticipated wasn't it? Thank you.